today on Flashpoints, an eyewitness account of last night's violent attack against standing water protectors by local, state, and federal law enforcement. The attacks on the indigenous protectors included water cannons, tear gas, mace, and rubber bullets. At least one person was critically wounded. Also, how standing rock water protectors are using technology to continue their resistance. And Greg Pallast returns with a post-election edition of our weekly election crimes bulletin. I'm Dennis Bernstein. All this straight ahead on Flashpoints. Stay tuned. That is what they're using. I'm not 100% sure exactly what it is. I've been told that it's tear, I've been told it's tear gas. You can see the power of this hose down there right now. Again, I'm going to stress that these are unarmed water protectors who are being fired upon by the militarized police. So they have compression grenades, they have tear gas. I believe that's a water cannon. They also have mace. So this is, they have rubber bullets too, I'm hearing from behind. I'm not 100% sure if that's water they're spraying right now, but if it is, it's pretty mean because it's pretty much below zero right now. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. This is your daily investigative news magazine. Well, we begin with an eyewitness account of uh, yesterday's vicious attack by law enforcement on water protectors at Standing Rock. Uh, We spoke with Cheryl Angel, who was an eyewitness. She's with the Rosebud Nation. You heard us on our our first interview talking about the, uh, the buffalo. Well, she was an eyewitness account, and she shared this troubling account of what happened yesterday in sub-freezing weather with water hoses. Unbelievable. Listen to this. My name is Cheryl Angel. I'm a member of the Rosebud Sioux Tribe. I'm Sinchanku, Lakota. I currently live at Cannonball to support Standing Rock in their efforts to save the water that millions of Americans. Last night, there was uh, one more incredibly violent police action. I'm wondering if you could describe what led up to it, what the protectors were doing, and then say as much as you can about the violence of the police reaction. Um, Yesterday evening, after a day of prayer and ceremony at all three camps, the security attempted to open the bridge by removing the um, burnt-out uh, trucks that the um, North Dakota authorities had put there themselves and had started on fire themselves. Um, and then and they used that as they do smoke bombs in there, and then they used that as a retreat, a treat, a retreating measure. So when the smoke cleared. Um, the burning vehicles that they had left there were all that were there and all of the law enforcement and all of the people had, all of their people had left. But those were left on the bridge. So our security force had tried to remove them from the bridge 
and the North Dakota authorities um, then decided to escalate um, their presence by calling in a militarized vehicle um, and I'm going to say 100, maybe 100 more law enforcement vehicles. There were so many you couldn't even count them. Um, you need to understand that on the what separates the tribe from the pipeline area that's being excavated is the Cannonball River. At some points, it's about 40 feet wide. At other points, it's only 20 feet wide. But there's a bridge that connects between those two lands and those two boundaries, and that's where the, the armored vehicles were, were parked that were already burnt out. So just the, the security force trying to remove them from ours, our security people, um, that's what started the encounter. And in terms of what happened, what was the encounter? We understand that a number of people were wounded, hit with these tear gas canisters. We understand that they were using uh, water hoses in, in, I guess, 20, 25 degree weather. Tell us more about that kind of violence so people can really, you know, get a human face on what's going on there. I felt like I was in a war zone. I had... um and called to a meeting, so I was heading for the meeting. I could hear young warriors, we call them Iapahas, running through the camp saying, everybody to the North Bridge. So everybody answered the call. They got in their vehicles, and they drove to the North Bridge. So both sides of the road had cars facing north. People were walking on the sides of the road. I, uh, The people didn't, of course, the meeting was canceled, so... Um, I had taken a back path that the deer, the wildlife, use, and I um, entered from between two hills on a on a deer path, and I walked through the trees up along the fence, and then from that point on, it was uh, there's floodlights. There's like at least 40 floodlights on the north side of the river, about a quarter mile apart along the entire path of that pipeline. So it's like moonlight. It's like daylight on the north side of the river on the south side uh, not so much and people had gathered there they had uh, they were singing at the front line they were um, playing uh, music at the front line they were chanting water is life mini richoni when i had got by the time i had gotten there um, people were coming back soaked in water and it was it was really cold out and the wind had picked up and truckloads of people with assistance had brought blankets and jackets and water and goggles and face masks. So when you entered the bridge, you could look to your right and pick up a blanket and pick up a goggle and pick up a face mask, and you could walk further to where the um, encounter was taking place. So I kept to the right of the bridge, and I went down to where the razor wire is because it's like a war zone there. I'm not kidding. Um, they have floodlights. They have the uh, tank right centered on the bridge. And there were, uh, there was no instructions. They were just, they had a water cannon there. I heard throughout the night that they had used seven water, uh, fire engine trucks. They, they emptied seven of them. It was unbelievable. I didn't think that they would continue to water cannon people. And we asked them, I went to the front line. I said, stop this. Please go home. Um, we're here praying for you. We'll find you new jobs. Have faith in us. Stand with us. We're protecting the water for millions, and they didn't listen. They stood behind the barbed wire, and they continued to 
um, they would lift their rifle and they would pick up, literally pick out individuals in the crowd and they would shoot them. And so water protectors had um, plastic container tops and they were using those as shields and uh, they were protecting people whenever they could. I was on the front line. I was very, very lucky because um, I didn't get shot. I got maced. I got pepper sprayed. I got water cannon. Um, the force of a water cannon, if you haven't found one, it knocks you off your feet. Um, we had built fires to warm up the people who were soaking wet in that frigid weather. The people were shaking. They were drenched in water and tear gas. Our medics were out there in full force um, doing what was necessary to keep people breathing. Um, People were sharing their um, inhalers for those who couldn't breathe. Um, it was it was unbelievable. I didn't think that um, things would come to this end. But unless Obama stands up, unless people start calling their senators, um, our lives are in danger. You know, not only the water, but our lives are physically in danger. Um, so it hurts me to talk like this, um, but a call needs to be made. Someone, hundreds of calls need to be made. Our water needs to be protected. We need support up here. We need wool blankets. We need wool clothes. Um, we need to replenish our first aid kits. We need more thermal blankets. We need batteries. Um, we need uh, jerky. We need, uh, you know, those uh, snack bars that you eat when you're not able to eat a, a hot meal. Um, on thermoses, we need, I think we need hundreds of thermoses because we can't even carry hot water with us anywhere we go. Um, it's, uh, it was just unbelievable. It was the, between being shot with the water and then dodging bullets, um, trying to deliver a peaceful uh, message and stay in prayer. It was hard. I mean, I slid down the hill. I was knocked off the hill by a water cannon. Uh, people picked me up. Um, there was a man standing right next to the military vehicle without any face protection, without any blankets, and he was singing, and he kept singing, and they just kept spraying him over and over. I picked up an army blanket. I covered him up with it. I stood beside him. We sang together. We prayed together. And they still shot at us, and they still maced us, and they still, you know, used the water cannon on, on whoever they wanted to, on everybody that was within their reach, everybody. And the fires that were started to protect everybody, to warm people up, those fires that were set to warm people up because there was no warming station at that site were targeted by the police, were targeted by the water cannon. They wanted to put out the fires that were keeping us warm. They intended on doing it, and that was their intent. They wanted it. We didn't start the fires, only the warming stations. The fires that were started randomly out in the field, those were by the um, tear gas canisters that they were shooting out there. Um, themselves, they, they were shooting canisters at us, um, into the crowd. Everybody at, at one point thought they were trapped on the bridge because lights were coming over from the south of us. Um, those turned out to be our own warriors, our own water protectors, our own vets, our own horse riders to support us. They stood up on the hill on both sides of the bridge on the south end. And uh, we were down at the bottom on the bridge um, up against the razor wire asking them to stop repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly. 
they wouldn't stop. They just kept going. Um, but the thing that really hurt me the most is when they, when they tried to put out the fires that were literally saving people's lives. They were literally targeting them. And so when I had gotten knocked down and was uh, totally drenched in water, I walked over to the fire to warm up. And I, I was only there long enough to empty the water out of my shoes. And then they started targeting the fire. So the protectors put up a shield, and for 30 seconds they stood there in a continual blast of water, and they were totally drenched. And then the fire, then they all split, and the, the, first the water hit the fire, and there was so much steam and smoke that came out of there. We were blinded, but there were two of us. And I grabbed a, one of those Teflon, Teflon Mylar uh, body warmers, and we stretched it between us, and we knelt down on it, and we held it between us, and we crouched together, and we covered one end of the fire, and we just sat there and we prayed. And they just they kept putting the water over us until um, we were completely drenched. Our, we were again, over and over. And I could hear a young girl when the smoke cleared. She was saying, grab the logs, grab the logs. And so people ran over, and uh, they grabbed the logs out of the fire, and they ran 30 yards out, put them together and started another fire so people could warm up before they were taken to the medic tents because there were hundreds of people who were soaking wet. They weren't dressed in wool. So when I put a call out for, um, for clothing, it's not for any cotton, not for polyester. It's for waterproof uh, jackets. And we there's hardly any waterproof pants at all. Um, so snow pants, um, snow bibs, anything that's waterproof, and wool. We need wool sweaters, wool socks, wool gloves, wool jackets. Those are the things that we need right now. And then to replenish, I wish uh, the Red Cross would show up. I really do wish that whoever has power to send the Red Cross over there would do that because we are in a state of emergency. That's, uh, that's how it was on the front line. I'm speaking with Cheryl Angel. Uh, she is Rosebud. She has uh, been standing up at Standing Rock, uh, working uh, with the elders and the youth. Uh, last night was a particularly violent night in the midst of a viciously cold uh, evening, and Cheryl Angel was there. She was an eyewitness, and I let me give you this chance. It's really important. You know, the, you, you, you sort of hit this very hard, but just to underline it, because, you know, places like NPR and the local police are saying that they had the water there because you all were starting fires and that you were throwing Molotov cocktails. That was the story that was uh, coming out of the police and the local uh, press. You want to talk a little bit more about that? I'm not afraid to call a liar to their face. If anyone's going to post things like that, they should be standing on the front line getting eyewitness testimony instead of just passing on the lies that the sheriff of the North Dakota and the governor of North Dakota and the DAPL are putting out because they are um, taking um, their own words and they're using them against the people to not know the truth. And that should be a crime. I mean, it should be. If I was lying to get people to hurt other people? Um, would I be called a good person? Would I be fit to wear a uniform? Would I be fit to lead a, a uh, state? I don't think so. You know, not according to the values that America claims that it follows. Um, so NPR, um, get on the front line, 
take your own videos because you weren't there. So I would like all these major media outlets to quit re- reprinting lies that are undocumented, undocumented um, statements from the police. All that happened was our security wanted to open that road because it is a public road. And that's what they said to us when we had our vehicles post on it on October 27th at sacred ground. They said, we need to open the road. It's a public road. Move your cars. So why can't we move those two trucks off the bridge? It's a public road. That's how it all started. Those are two burnt trucks. That the military had, that the military forces had placed there themselves. The North Dakota officials put those there, and they started them on fire. And they, before they left, they said, please stay away from the vehicles. They're, they have propane inside of them. They're explosive devices, which, of course, led everybody to move back from the bridge. And they, they left them there. And then they put razor wire, which is also unconstitutional. You cannot use that type of razor wire. I mean, you only see those in war zones. You don't see them in the United States. But I'm starting to feel like now we're in a war zone. So it's a battle, people. We need bodies up front. We need the world to know that water is a precious commodity. It is sacred to natives. Understand, when you understand its relationship to life, you will understand the the sacredness of it. And we need your support. We need this economy to stop the the um, being um, the oil and gas industry it's not uh, it's not good for our country we need to divest from fossil fuels and and start um, being a leader in the world by um, adopting a green policy and building and getting new jobs for these people who are uh, in the oil industry um, thank you for listening to me my flight is about to leave I am leaving for ceremony um, I'll be in ceremony for four days, and uh, I'll be available after four days, if, and things will probably change by then, too. We wish you the absolute best. Thank you. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We continue playing for you uh, interviews we did during our recent visit at Standing Rock. This next interview is with Myron Dewey, known also as Strong Thinker. He's a professor, and he is training the young people of Standing Rock uh, and the indigenous communities how to use technology, including drones, to fight for the people and to save the water. Listen to this. How Paiute Shoshone, a Walker Paiute tribe, uh, Bishop Paiute tribe, and the owner of Digital Smoke Signals. My English name is Myron Dewey. A whole Shinami is my Paiute name, strong thinker. And I came here after a run called the Peace and Dignity Run this summer, which was the eagle and the condor prophecy of the North and the South, indigenous people coming together. And this, uh, this year's theme was the Seeds of Life. And so with, with uh, my six-year-old son, we took off on the run. Okay. We started in our homelands in Paiute country, and we ran 1,000 miles all the way to Diné country in uh, Pinion, Arizona, to a Sundance, where I met a lot of relatives from here, you know, that were at that Sundance. It's very powerful uh, to be in prayer 24-7, you know, from the morning you wake up till you put that staff down in the evening time. And you're, you're running about 110 to 120 miles a day. And uh, when I went home, 
you know, I was just kind of kicking back and I was relaxed. I just used all my funds, you know, to get where I was going and um, was sitting there just uh, updating a, a, a post about the Peace and Dignity Run. And I seen some runners running across and I go, wow, I wonder where they are. You know, I wonder where they're going. I wonder which which path that was because there's several different runs that come through that Peace and Dignity Run. Well, these guys were running to D.C. and I go, I didn't know they were going the opposite way, you know, so I was, I started watching them, and I kept seeing Water of Life, Water of Life. I go, well, that's cool. And then I heard one of the youth speak, and they were sharing about their issue that they were having here at Cannonball. And uh, I worked with the youth here in Cannonball. My background is a historical trauma trainer. I use social media and film, and also I'm a professor. Um, I taught at Northwest Indian College. And so... You know, coming in and working with the youth for the last 20 years has been uh, what's, I, you know, I've, I've been in their position. I've been in those hard times and alcoholic family and uh, run-ins with the law when you're young, you know, when you don't have that guidance. And I've always wanted to give the youth what I never had, and which is an uncle or a mentor or leave them something. But I always, I always heard people um, that came to our reservation leave with that information. They never, it never stayed and so I started learning things over the years of knowing what you don't know, whether it be editing, filming, producing, music. And I kept hearing all the problems we were having throughout Indian country, which is the digital divide. Um, filming was a huge issue because our story is never told by us over the last hundred years. It's always told by non-natives. And then when I went to graduate school, um, even the history books, I started learning about ethno-history. And I was thinking, wow, where have I been? You know, everything we're learning is not about us. Everything is being written is not by us. So I just started knowing what I don't know. And that's how I got to be here is, is staying ready. And I knew this would happen. And when I was at Haskell, I was a research, environmental research assistant for three universities. And at first I didn't think it was going anywhere because, you know, environmental issues it gets pretty old and all I did was research and research but I did research about the tribe here in North Dakota South Dakota uh, the Navajo Nation Oak Flats over there uh, Yucca Mountain the different areas around Nevada um, definitely because that's my hometown about the mining issues our medicines that were being abused sacred sites I mean the desecration of lands our, our uh, cemeteries, I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And it wasn't with my tribe. It was with all the tribes throughout the country. And so by staying ready, you just continue to keep learning and educating. And I wanted to empower our non-native relatives. It's the way you honor us, and I keep telling every journalist that comes through, is learn about us. Because we're, we're sharing with you mascots is not a way to honor us. Wearing our regalia is not a way to honor us. But learning about us is a way to honor us. Educate yourself, empower yourself, and learn why we are here. And then when you come here, you're, you're ready. And I've told this to several hundred journalists the same way. Is it's it's uh, embarrassing for you as a national network to come here and not know about indigenous people. You should be ashamed of yourself that you didn't come prepared. Because I'm not here to give you Indian 101. So, you know, it's, it's also in a good way is to empower them. So I'm going to share with you, there's Haskell Indian Nations University. Every college around the country has an Indian Center or a Native American Studies Department or Indigenous Nations Study Department. These are the key words you need to look for. And it turned into like educating every single day. And it just got overwhelming. 
and you know because I wasn't doing the work outside and so what I did when I first got here was we seen the uh, action on uh, September 3rd when the dogs came through and the mercenaries the first contact the G4 security and then Amy Goodman was here also and I started just realizing as a filmmaker I wasn't going to be able to film I needed to document as a legal visual narrative and so I put my camera away and pulled out my phone and just started going Facebook live and I realized at that time we we're in the digital divide I had to stand in certain places and uh, I started noticing that the at that time the officers were all lined up along the road and I go why are they not stopping this and so I decided to go down be the last guy out and go down and interview them and they tried to throw me in jail and so uh, at that time uh, I saw non-native journalists say they asked him for his credentials he goes hey I'm a journalist I don't have to give you anything and he walked off so I was like well, follow key and I did the same thing and they says grab him and then the aim guys came by and threw me in the back of the car before I even knew what was going on and that's how it started you know people protecting me and, and telling the story sharing the story and as a the actions for me, I, I had to go down and see where is the point of origin of this. So I was out 100 miles all the time, and I ran into these mercenaries all the time out there, you know. I'm a big guy too, you know, so it didn't seem as intimidating, but there's a fear factor that I've lost. And a few years ago, that fear factor was when I almost died. And I realized that that's helped me here because I know it's a beautiful death on the other side. I've witnessed that as... Uh, my own experience so by being there with these guys you know it's it really just made me have compassion for them and try to educate them and empower them on why we were here no matter what they said what they did how they treated me and that's been my role here is to educate and empower and articulate the scenario that we're seeing with the, the Dakota Access Pipeline and what that means to the indigenous people that's going through here but also what that means back home to our own people that are following. You know, we've lost our, our food source. Two years ago, all the trout in our lake, at the Walker Lake in Nevada, were killed. And that has to do with environmental change. The, the vein of water that goes through has been cut off by um, corporate produce, you know. And I bring our issues here because it's already happened. And it's going to happen if we don't stop this pipeline. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Let me ask you to talk a little bit about what you've been doing in terms of you're using technology for the people. And in this context, you're using drones. Talk a little bit about why you're using the drones and what you're learning uh, from their use and how that sort of uh, supports the work that you're doing with the indigenous communities here. Well... There's many things we're using. You know, uh, mobile technology is very important. You know, whatever you have in your hand. We have these iPhones, these Android phones, is more technology than they had in the 60s when they launched the, the man to the moon. I know this, and I run 100% of my business off of my phone. But also what we're doing is GPS and accurately from the phones because we know those are GPS right there from where we're standing. I've used Google Maps, which is free, I've used uh, social media, which is free, and drones have been just, a, I, I guess, they're minute in my, in my opinion because it's just a tool. Um, my drones have been shot down, you know, illegally, which we know that. 
and um, but it's documented what they have been doing all the way from their signals on the top of their cars to their maneuvers and their military action their um, corporate military action from one side is the Dakota Access Pipeline is corporate military action the sheriff's also corporation is is untrained militarized the drones have documented these mercenaries going over and being deputized in ways where they're fully covered you can't see who they are we document these uh, people and we see them all the time so you start to know their walk their movements like they know us and um, I've had to stay in, in not just prayer but transparency so we have a clear painted picture of what's happening and the drones were going live there for a while before they did the media blackout and are going to continue to go live and share the story even it means you know that people are going to jail every day to protect the water so there's many factors that go into play here. It's an intellectual battle, and we're intellectual warriors, and we're articulating technology through indigenous eyes. And very specifically, for instance, today you had the drones up. What were you trying to ascertain? What kinds of um, information did you gain today? Well, what we're doing today is training, training other drone pilots. Uh, a few days ago, I did an indigenous women's training, and I want to give the drone to a native filmmakers, a group, you know, that are going out there to protect and, but most important, articulate the narrative here, the visual legal narrative in a good way. Um, it's not to go out and, and start putting um, just where it just looks like chaos. I call that forced media. And I've seen a lot of that here. And so I want to empower our native filmmakers to go out and uh, not break the, break the law, but break the rules and what they're doing. And we're breaking the rules here. And we're doing it by articulating the FAA regulations, FCC regulations, spectrum, tribal airspace, sovereignty, inherent sovereignty, and, and seeing that, yeah, this is in violation of the 1851 treaty. I'm not even from here, but I know about that treaty. So this is, uh, the goal here is to empower the locals here to empower themselves to look at this, how important it is, because when you come through that front gate, it's, it's the process of decolonizing and it's an altar that I consider and this is one of the most powerful places in the world for that healing because you have a diversity of spiritual backgrounds from all over the world coming here to pray in one voice it's powerful and we have to respect that also with the drones and the technology when and when not to film which I'm sure you guys got your card you got the the spill on the digital protocols which I which I started back in the the media when it was in a little little tent you know we didn't have anything, humble beginnings. And uh, it was protocol I used with the youth, when and when not to film. You know, you don't film ceremonies, you ask for permission, you don't fill the kids unless you have the permission. You're, you're following traditional cultural protocol in the second decade of the 21st century, but we're doing it through digital protocol. One has a sense you're, you're, you're rescuing back the new technology for the people. I mean, when I hear the word drone, I think about Palestine and the way in which uh, the Israeli occupiers used drones to slaughter innocent people who had no defense and nowhere to run. Uh, they have been used, we've seen in Afghanistan, as a part of a U.S. assassination program. So here you are uh, turning it uh, for the people. Um, what has been the response of, of, of those um, of that attempt? Have the authorities gotten a little bit angry? Are they frustrated with you? Are you? Have they tried to 
take your drones? Have they tried to put you in jail? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. On October 8th, um, we were documenting where they were working within the 16-mile to the 20-mile buffer zone. And um, I used the drone as surveillance at that time. I, I go in every direction. I see no dust. And um, during that time, I seen a plane going really slow above me. Very, very slow. Like these, these are huge planes, but it was low and it was going slow, like two miles an hour. I don't know how it was going so slow. And I just, I'm like, guys, we got to get out of here. And when we left, the drone had to follow me out and the cops started appearing. They were coming in from 10 miles out. They closed in in the box. They've been looking for me for two months. They just couldn't get me. The drone I had is, is was customized to go eight miles line of sight. You can see it. And, um, you know, one of those those things that you look, you think, what could I have done differently? There's really nothing I could have done. They had a military plane that was tracking me. They've been tracking me and until they found me going up in air there. I'm assuming they were using radar because you can track the drones through their movement. It was up at a legal height. And when it came down, they were pulled me over. And uh, the first time we voluntarily stopped to see, well, maybe they just let us go. They did let us go, but we left because there was no pulling us over. We voluntarily stopped. But when the drone said critical battery low because it's been in the air for over 20 minutes, that's when he pointed up and we took off. I landed the drone in front of us and I did everything legal as possible because I could have caught the drone like I usually do. But these cops were right behind us. So I dropped it, picked it up, put it in the car. Five minutes later, we were pulled over by 14 officers, 14, 14 vehicles, which each vehicle has two officers. There was about eight or nine in front of me no badges no names and we know these guys already and they as a passenger they asked me to get out which i don't legally have to get out i don't have to give them any id and uh, my seatbelt was on so i had an all legal parameter to stay where i was at we already had their agenda they made up that this thing that they had a, a warrant i asked to produce the warrant and I also asked them that they had no, told them they had no permission to go through the vehicle. They violated all of those. And I know there's the Fifth Amendment or the, where I have the right to remain silent as well. But I couldn't tell they were talking to me. So I was like, all right, I'm Facebook Live. There's about 30,000 viewers on. I'm gonna help let the world see what's happening here. And I continued, plus being 70 miles out and having officers with no name tags on, it's kind of uneasy, you know. <laughs> and so, uh, but that drone action shut down the DAPA workers that day. You know, a single drone shut them down. They actually shut down and they were leaving. So um, they drove by me, every one of them. I looked at them and, and I'm getting to know these guys really well by seeing them. But that, uh, that action happened not just there. They let me go. They stole my drone. So I went to the... Um, police department with my lawyers and I filed a theft against Jonathan Mall, which we know his name, who stole my drone. He's the cop. He's the cop that stole my drone. When I see them stuttering, when they're talking to me, I, I got him. I know I got him intellectually. And I just let them incriminate themselves. And uh, I don't try to be sarcastic to them or anything like that. I want to educate them and let them know what they're doing is wrong. And hopefully I can touch their spirit in a way where they're, they're if they're not listening, their spirit's listening. That's what's the most important part. And as I started to document every officer, every FBI agent, and even the DAPL security, 
we started to see that, you know, something's going on here. That's when we seen the militarization and cooperation. And then later on, no one believed me when I told them it was National Guard as well. And so I had to start going on night actions and filming them as well, working together. And then I got to really talk to them because they like, they didn't know what was going on. And then I started seeing interagencies coming in. And where we are today in domestic uh, terrorism is where they put us. This is, their, this is their justification that they're using. We're their training ground. And this is what America needs to wake up to, is that we are no longer 500 years ago. This is now the second decade of the 21st century. And we have intellectual warriors now that are now knowing how to articulate this militarization because we've experienced it for 500 years. And, but this is like 500 years all over again. And as the ghost dance, when the massacre happened during the ghost dance, if they could have had Facebook at that time, that would have never happened, you know, because they did send runners out. They did try to get a reach out, but it wasn't fast enough. And today we have that reach, and that's what we are doing. We're educating and empowering today, and that's not going to happen again. And we stay in prayer as they did during the ghost dance. And we're demonstration. This is a demonstration of prayer. And by educating them on every action that we do, they're waking up and officers are leaving the force. They're leaving, they're, they're pulling back their, uh, their agencies. And some of them are denying coming here because they're seeing what we're doing. We're unarmed and we're in prayer. And as of yesterday during Veterans Day, the, the guys on the other side, the National Guard didn't even salute, didn't even honor their veterans when they saw the, everything the protocol was going, we're in honoring the veterans. So I've interviewed some military that were, you know, they felt that was shameful what they're doing, you know, what they're witnessing. And there's Navy, there's different, there's Green Beret, there's Army, there's uh, Air Force and, and some National Guard. So there's people that are there that have taken that oath and they say they're taking an oath, they're breaking that oath. We're seeing that that militarization is gonna enact a martial law soon down the road. So we're the training ground. America is now the training ground for what we're gonna see down the road. And I don't think you have to be a, a scholar or a, have a vision to see what we're seeing on the ground right now because this is gonna happen. We watched it play out in the last several months. Did you get your drone back? I did not get my drone back. Everyone else got their expensive equipment back and you know, and my court date was set out for January. That makes no sense, but I'm thankful I don't have a felony. But you know, I have a stocking charge on a mercenary. And I think that's pretty cool. These guys are mercenaries. They said they were scared for their lives. <laughs> the mercenaries. The mercenaries, yes. And you do try and talk to some of these folks right head on? Oh, of course. I, I got, you know, you can see a lot of the Facebook lives, even one in South Dakota. They had no clue what they were doing here. And I asked them if I can pray for them, and they're like, nah. I'm like, wow, really? I've never seen someone turn, or, turn that away. So I shared with them that I was going to... Um, send them a blessing anyway and they're like well you have to be here and I go hey it's power in place I've got the power and this is the place so it says if you're not gonna if I don't speak to you then I'm gonna talk to your spirit and I prayed for them in a good way that they were protected and Kirschmeyer called on the phone I go hey tell Kirschmeyer said hello you know it's, <laughs> they rolled up their window and that was it he's probably saying dummies quit talking to that guy because that's always what happens is the conversation calls they, they get a phone call and they have to quit talking. But this has happened more than once. Um, a lot of being on the ground is is being there in the front lines. We are now in the front lines. The camp is the front lines. And I've witnessed Morton County Police Department break many rules. One of the other ones where we got in a 100-mile-an-hour speed chase. 
I chased them down to the police, to the National Guard barricade. They were taking pictures in front of the school of our children. And I chased them all the way down. I called 911 and I was on Facebook Live when we were doing this. And we got almost to the police barricade. The officers pulled to the side and they slowed down and all the police pulled me over. Um, I didn't know they were officers. All I knew that men were taking pictures of our children, which is predatory activity. And this is what we have seen with the, the Morton County Police Department time and time and time over again. They're bad cops and concealing bad police activity. When I say bad cops, I mean they're not professional. I'm assuming they're, they're good men and where they're at, but they are bad at what they do. They stick out like sore thumbs when they try to tell somebody. I mean, do they not watch movies and, you know, Dirty Harry and all that? It's like they're not great cops. We catch them following us. We catch them with the planes. They're, they can't hide what they're doing. And when I caught them on 911 and Facebook Live, they tried to lie to me. And I told them, well, I'm chasing predators. And they were going to cite me for interfering with uh, law enforcement and the traffic. They're trying to make something up. So I said, you know, 911's on. There's predators. I don't know they're police officers. And I continued to just go and stick with that. And then finally they said, Myron, you can go. They know me by first name. So as I drove away, I said, is it okay if I turn around? I don't want to get a, a warrant, you know, and a, another charge for turning around. Because I did get pulled over for crossing a smog lane, you know. So he says, you're fine. Turn around, Myron. These guys call me by my first name. You know, it's crazy. So as we drove away, I, I saw the guy that was in the car. And I says, good morning, uh, Mr. Mall. And he waved his hand. And as he realized he waved his hand, he put it down real slow. Got him just like that. And that's what we're witnessing, that type of action. And we see it every day. Someone new comes in. They just stick out like a sore thumb. They can't even, even infiltrators stick out like a sore thumb. We're in prayer. There's something that's uh, in synchronicity here. And when you feel someone's not in synchronicity, you can feel it. Thank you. In Berkeley, it's Dennis Bernstein. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. And we continue our weekly election crimes bulletin with Greg Palace. Stay tuned. This is Dennis Bernstein, and welcome back to our weekly election crime bulletin with Greg Pallast. The election is over, so now the election becomes the crime scene. Greg, uh, it is good to have you back. We're going to keep going because uh, your friend Chris Kobach, among others, uh, is continuing apace to carry out the Trump policies. So to set the scene for us, remind us who he is and where we are right now in the crime scene. Well, well, first of all, since we haven't spoken since the uh, since the crime, <laughs> which is covered police, uh, you know, police scene. Don't touch the evidence, which there, uh, which is November eighth was a crime scene. There is no doubt, none in my uh, mind, and I'm I'm talking to, of course, my uh, my boss at Rolling Stone about uh, the the details, but uh, there's no question that Trump lost, and I'm not just talking about the popular vote by a couple of million. I'm saying in those electoral college swing states, uh, the absolute, uh, the, the ultimate evidence is that the exit polls were way off. We're not talking about the guess, guesstimate polls, you know, before the projection polls, you know, because they don't know who's going to vote. We're talking about the exit polls. People walk out and they say, here's who I just voted for. And those, those people... Uh, the people in the exit polls clearly gave the election in all those swing states, and we're talking Wisconsin, and we're talking um, uh, Michigan, 
Ohio, North Carolina especially, um, Florida, gave those states to uh, Hillary Clinton. And now what could be the difference between the exit polls? Remember, these are people who just walked out and said, here's how I voted. This is the gold standard. Our own State Department uses exit polls to determine whether a nation's elections are honest. If it differs from the count, we accept the exit polls. In every country, like we rejected the Ukrainian elections and rejected Serbian elections and rejected Peruvian elections because of the mismatch with the exit polls. But in the United States, we say, oh, it's not a dishonest election. It's the, election. It's the pollsters who are obviously corrupt, right? You know how Hillary pays them off. Um, the, here's the truth. People said they voted for Clinton because they did. What happened? Well, first of all, one thing we don't get in the United States, which we do get, you know, I work with BBC, and we do, when BBC reports vote totals from an election, we report, for example, in Brexit, those for Brexit, those against Brexit, and the ballots that didn't get counted or invalidated for some reason, they were blank, they were destroyed, they were unreadable, um, something. We don't do that in the United States because there's so darn many. I figure roughly, I gotta, we have to see how, how it shakes out. We don't have all the numbers. About 5 million, million, 5 million votes were invalidated, either uh, um, what are called the, uh, uh, the provisional ballots, which were rejected, early ballots, mail-in ballots, invalidated, absentee ballots, invalidated. Um, for example, in over half of Trump's margin is accounted for by the rejection of 97,000 votes in Durham, North Carolina. That's the black, you know, you got Raleigh Durham is kind of one city where the Raleigh part is white and the Durham part is black. And 97,000 early votes were simply invalidated and rejected. That was half of Trump's margin. And we go on from there. Um, and so you have a definite count. What's, the reason why there's a difference between exit polls, which said Hillary won, and the Trump poll, and the, the final count, which is that Trump won, as counted by the GOP officials, is simply from votes invalidated and not counted. You don't need fancy computer messing around with the vote tallies at all to account for this. This is straightforward ballot goes in the garbage stuff. Uh, so I would note that, for example, in uh, North Carolina, uh, Hillary won by a huge margin, 3.8% in the exit polls. And yet she was shown as losing by 2%. But of course, you had 97,000 black votes thrown out just in Durham in the early voting. That's, so you can imagine what happened elsewhere. And as you know, uh, we've been following the fate of the worst new purge program called Interstate Crosscheck. That was huge in North Carolina. Huge. Uh, and in my film, The Best Democracy Money Can Buy, I go down to North Carolina, I confront these guys. I have the sheets of these supposed illegal voters, and I meet with them. I mean, you know, uh, um, and, and, you know, it, it's, it's a, they accused literally 190,000 people in North Carolina. The GOP Secretary of State accused 190,000 people of illegally voting twice, and they didn't bring a single case, even though it's a felony crime, they didn't bring a single case against anyone, but they wiped out tens of thousands of votes. And if you take the early vote out of Durham, the cross-check, and some of the other shenanigans, it is, there's no question that Hillary did win, as the exit polls say, 
in North Carolina. Michigan, down to 11,000 votes. Again, a cross-check state with 449,000 people tagged as as, uh, double voters. About 50,000 were removed, mostly minorities. There's your math. There's your Michigan. Wisconsin, uh, just a a few little tricks that uh, they were playing there. That's that's Wisconsin. Florida, uh, Hillary won that. uh, By exit polls, 1.3%, but somehow the Donald pulls out by 1.4%. Again, uh, the massive blockade of uh, the minority vote. This is this was a Jim Crow election, the first election since the destruction of the Voting Rights Act in 2013, our first presidential election. We see what happened. It's it's. And, oh, well, let right. me just come in. Now. We're speaking with Greg Palast, uh, the best democracy money can buy. This is your weekly. Uh, protection bulletin we call it the uh the the elections crimes bulletin greg has got the uh the crime scene tape up now uh and has been watching the way in which there was a massive move uh, to disenfranchise voters of color black voters this is very targeted and we see the sort of the the white race kicking in it is of course of a significant note as you pull off this election in which so many black and brown people are disenfranchised, somebody like Jefferson Beauregard Sessions III, who hates voting rights, who was instrumental in wiping out uh, the Voter Rights Act, is now rising to the highest law enforcement official in the land. It is terrifying, Greg. Yep, and... But you have to understand, this is the this is not the end of the attack on voting rights. This is not the culmination. This it's the is the beginning. beginning. Right? And here's, and here's the, why. Yeah. And here's why. Guess what? The guy behind interstate cross check, the guy who uh, who came up with the Muslim tracking list that everyone's going crazy about, Chris Kobach, KK, the um, the Secretary of State of Kansas for the moment. He's going to end up as head of the Department of Homeland Security. Write that down. Greg Pallas just said it. He's going to end up as head of the Department of Homeland Security, which will, so he can go back to Muslim tracking and uh, head of immigration in Homeland Security. But he's also using Homeland Security. His idea will be to use that as a base to attack the voter rolls. Now, that's not just my fantasy, my dark fantasy. And he went in, uh, Chris Kobach, uh, Sunday, went in to meet with Trump, and photographers had that nice little, you know, two white guys smiling at the camera shot before they went in for their discussion. And Kobach had his memos he was handing to Trump in his hand. And foolishly, especially for a guy who wants to be head of Homeland Security, he didn't even put a cover on the memos. So photographers, actually, some sharp photographers actually got a picture of a hunk of the memos. And it says that, he's, that they have a plan to, to uh, draft amendments to the voting rights, uh, to voting rights law and the National Voter Registry. It's right on that memo that the photographers were able to get pictures of. So he's going he's going, his idea is to use Homeland Security to cleanse the voter rolls. And guess who gets cleansed, Mr. Mohammed? Amazing. That's how it's going to be. And so we are just to believe me, this is they are this this is the this is the the fifth right here. Okay? This is this is white power is what it is. It, well, I mean, what we've it is, got it's, you know what? 
it's really they're using white. They're using like like uh, the great lawyer Bob Fatrakis, um went in with me on uh, the day before election day. I was allowed in as the only reporter to who covered his, his the hearing on his lawsuit in in Ohio to try to make the vote somewhat straight. He he says it's not that they're bigots. They use bigotry. They know that that's a way. In other words, if you say we're knocking off terrorists off the voter rolls, no one's going to complain. If you're knocking off double voters off the voter rolls, no one's going to complain. Um, if you're knocking off supposed aliens who don't exist, Trump said a million aliens literally swam the Rio Grande to vote for Hillary. They didn't arrest one, which is kind of odd. But uh, and especially, what were they reluctant because Joe Arpaio is still, you know, still the sheriff there, um, on the, you know, in uh, in Arizona. Um, they didn't arrest any. They didn't arrest any double voters, but they knocked off literally hundreds of thousands of of minority voters as double voters. This type of game. And now the guy who's been running these basically racist programs. And again, I don't know if he's a racist. And I met Chris Kobach. You know, he went to Oxford. He's a cosmopolitan guy. He's a brilliant guy. He knows that race is the lever to get what you want in America. If you can scare people with their opponent's skin color, then you can get away with an awful lot. And clearly, that's what he has in mind, to take over Homeland Security, to make this a terror state, and to lock down America, but also use that as a way to terrorize voters and um, purge the voter rolls. Well, according to your film, he certainly does like vanilla ice cream. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and in my film, I... Because he wouldn't meet with me, right? He wouldn't meet with me. So I, I actually I flew to Wichita and I found out he had an ice cream social in a public park, and I, I got a combat photographer, Daniel Myers, because I, I didn't know he what was needed be there. one. Well, is it was it all? Come on, tell me the truth. Was it yeah. only vanilla that they were serving? Yeah. And it was it was true. So they had this this Republican fundraiser. I can't people, believe. they're all about 115. All, they're 100 percent white, about 115 years old is the average age. And they're all, and it's an ice cream social, but there's only vanilla ice cream. And in the meantime, Kobach, who's going to be our, you know, our, our terror, anti-terrorism chief, and by the way, it does kind of scare me that he doesn't know that he's do, dealing with national security. You don't put a cover on your memos. Uh, you know, I mean, thank God he didn't, but, you know, like, geez. And, uh, but he's running away from me in the film, but still trying to eat his ice cream and screaming at me that I'm a liar. And, and I'm confronting him with these documents because, see, he thought at first from a distance that he didn't recognize me right off because I, I didn't have my hat on at first. And then I also – one of those microphones with the cube on it that said Channel 4, like Eyewitness News, except it was Channel 4 Britain. He didn't know that. So <laughs> I grabbed him. You know, that's how – but, you know, it's fun and games, but now uh, – Now it's, the, gonna, now it's profound. Now it is it, – now they, the, this is – pretty extraordinary well greg um we're going to leave it there but we're going to yep. keep doing this uh yeah, elections to. crime bulletin because uh the crimes continue as you say structurally now if they manage to jam sessions through now this guy this guy you know they everybody was 
you know, going, oh, oh, David Duke. But David Duke is sort of virtually, uh, in context, powerless. But Sessions, he was the Uptown White Citizens Council. He was the, the funder. He made this stuff happen. He implemented these early voter fraud uh, investigations. I'm telling you, Greg, you go back and you look at this stuff. Uh, Sessions was Mr. Vo Black Voter Fraud, and he was vicious. He'd stick elderly people on buses and drive them across state at, you know, 90 and 100 degree uh, uh, temperature in Western Alabama to come and testify for these uh, incredible accusations. So, did, by the way, did you did you commit voter fraud and did you burn down your own church to, to divert us? I mean, that's who is going to be the attorney general. So here they are, the white power folks together. It's ugly. Yeah, well, and again, it's who's behind them. As I say, in the best democracy money can buy, behind Kobach, that he's Kansas. Is the that's the Cokes, Okay, the Cokes yeah. figured out a way to shove a hundred thousand dollars into this guy's pocket. Uh, the Cokes, uh, by the way, who now advertise on your favorite business show, Marketplace. <laughs> anyway. Yes. <laughs> So it's like, uh, you know, we're all Coke people, whatever that means. We're all. Uh, uh, unfortunately, they may be correct. Pretty soon we'll all have to wear little Ks on our, 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 on Greg, our shirt, Gregpalace you know, com is the best place. Gregpalace.com. Stuff coming up in uh, Rolling Stone. We will be doing this uh, election crimes bulletin every week. Uh, usually we're going to do it on Wednesday, but today... Uh, here we are because uh, we wanted to get to this uh, as soon as we got back from Standing Rock. So, Greg Palast, thank you, and we'll talk to you soon. And people can check you out at gregpalast.com. Just the facts, ma'am. All right. Peace.